Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right. So again, by way of just kind of catching up, we'll, we'll have a couple false starts this morning. That's okay. No big deal. Um, with that, that tagline that I've tried to use as kind of an umbrella to remind us how all these themes pull together is in the book of Acts, we are reminded that we are continuing the ministry and the mission of Jesus and we'll face opposition. And I know you're probably tired of hearing me say that, but I do want you to know, I do believe that's how all of these themes are fitting together. Here's what we're going to discover in our three sections today. And in fact, they become the three pages of your handout is that we're actually going to find an internal threat in the church and then an external threat that's going to threaten the church. And then we're going to come back side in the church and see another internal threat. And then next week when we come back together, we're going to see a major external threat of persecution and suffering. So right now, as we come to this particular time when the church is growing and it's growing in popularity, growing in numbers, it's going to face a number of problems. That's not a surprise, by the way, if you've been a part of a church. Um, I usually have a tagline when it comes to difficulty or conflict in the church. It goes like this. Wherever two or more are gathered, there will be. And you just kind of fill in the blank, right? And, and so you know that Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered, I will be there with them. Well, that particular reference in Matthew's gospel is a reference to suffering and difficulty and opposition. Jesus there is not saying, hey, guess what? When you're by yourself, I'm not going to be there. But when you get together with two other people, oh, I'm, I'm glad two people showed up for your small group because now I can attend too. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying there, hey, when things get hard, I'm going to be there with you as well. And so one of my kind of statements is we should be just as aware of Jesus's presence in the midst of conflict as we are in the midst of communion. That might not be a bad idea, by the way, even in, I don't know, like our marriages, our families uh, in the church. So as we come to this, this, this text today and we find these difficulties, whether they be internal or external, the reminder we're going to have over and over again in the midst of this opposition is that Jesus is present and that he's going to continue his mission. He's going to continue his ministry. Don't be surprised. It's sometimes going to be hard. Now, as we come to the text today, we're going to start and we're going to hear this paragraph that's somewhat like what we've seen before, this summary paragraph in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 32. So I want to start really by reading this opening paragraph and then dialoguing about it. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in, here's the end of verse 32, in common. Now that word uh, is a word that has the root word for it, for the word fellowship, where we get the word fellowship. So koine is this word. Uh, koinonia is the word for fellowship, to have everything in common. What did we say earlier on in the book of Acts that was an implication or, or a uh, ramification of the gospel? They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. We're going to see two of those again here. They're going to devote themselves to the fellowship. They're going to vote them, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Notice verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. What were they given a witness about? The resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was among them all. There was not a needy person among them. This is an important phrase to remember, because we're going to come back to it in just a second. 
For as many who are owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each, notice the phrase, as they had need. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, and I love nicknames in the Bible. This guy's nickname, which means son of encouragement. Some of you have had these kinds of people in your life. People who have the nickname, you're my encourager. I've started just naming these people. I've just said, you're my encourager. I need you in my life. Um, we're going to find that Barnabas is not just this here in his own generosity, but he's going to be this to Paul. We're going to know him as Saul, who needs someone to bring him and welcome him into, into the church, encourage him in the church. Barnabas is going to continue to do this. Barnabas is a Levite. Uh, this is the priestly family. And he's from Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him. He brought the money and he, notice where he brings it, he lays it at the apostles' feet. Two different dynamics going on here. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But what I want you to see is that even in this phraseology, intentionally Luke is telling us that the church is the, the Israel Okay? It is the promised people, and God is fulfilling some of the things that he wanted the, the nation of Israel to be in these very acts. Uh, I gave you the quote, Deuteronomy chapter 15. That entire chapter has this tagline that plays out in different ways, but it's an illusion that we find here. There shall be no needy person among you when you enter the promised land. And it's talking about the year of Jubilee and the seven years of selling things back and rightful landowners and all of those things. What do we have here? This fellowship dynamic that says, when you're a part of this family, we're going to take care of each other. Now, one of the things that I do at times is I forget that sometimes um, they did not have the same social security system and systems that we have in the United States. So sometimes I anachronistically import some of my ideas of what social security or personal financial security looks like back in the first century world. One of the things I, I fail to see is that how you had social security is through your social group. That's why we come up with the phrase social security, which isn't all that secure, which is, you know, financial security, social security, all of these things we talk about with the word security, we find out we're not all that secure. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that. But for them, there were two entities that would be their source of social security. Number one, their family, their immediate family. Number two, if that family were to not to at some point not be able to keep them secure, it was their extended family or their social group. So if you're Jewish, this would have been the synagogue. And in fact, we actually have um, examples of how the synagogue would financially take care of, for instance, widows in the, in the synagogue, in that gathering of believers. This would be their source of social security. In the same way, a community or town might provide some of those same sources of security. Notice what's beginning to happen. The church is gathering together, but they're also recognizing we're becoming something that is going to be separate and not seen as a part of the synagogue. So what happens then when someone has a financial need? Well, later on, there's going to be a very strong separation of the synagogue and believers. Well, that means we need to take care of those who are part of this social group or part of this family. And so what we have here is this generosity of individuals who are saying, well, I have a field that I can get rid of, and we can come and we can share this. Um, this is what we find in this particular uh, text. 
Is this what we find all the way throughout the book of Acts? We find this same kind of a thing all the way throughout the book of Acts. In fact, I would argue we find this even here today, where people say, I have enough. Um, I love when Jesus teaches on contentment. Um, That's actually my phrase of contentment, is it is enough. I can be content. Paul says this. He says, "Um, I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to have need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I was a kid, I used to think that that verse had to do with like, I don't know. I I remember quoting that verse when I was jumping on a a trampoline, thinking if I could jump, and I'm I'm a little kid at this point, if I could jump high enough, I might be able to jump from the trampoline up onto my roof. And I was quoting that verse. I could do all things through Christ. It didn't work, right? It's not a magical incantation. But what is that verse in context? Here's what that verse is in context. I can be content even when life is hard. I have enough in Jesus. So here we have disciples of Jesus who have said about themselves, I have enough. But I have a brother or sister who doesn't. And because I have enough in Jesus, I can give up whatever this is, a field, and I can distribute it or entrust the church to distribute it to those who have legitimate need. And by the way, the Bible does care about legitimate need. I, I put another reference here for you in, in 1 Timothy about widows. And we'll, we'll talk about widows later. But there's a, a phrase in 1 Timothy where Paul says, I want you to take care of the needs of widows who are truly widows. And I, I tease students when I, we talk about that at Ozark, because my question for them is, so what's a true widow? What does Paul mean? What's a true widow? And they go, well, anyone who, whose husband has passed away. And I go, I know, no, But that's not how Paul's using this. Because notice he's talking about widows, and then he says, truly widows. And in that text, Paul's talking about widows who truly have a financial need. He's, notice what he's doing. He's using discernment and wisdom to distinguish between what is a need and what is someone who's trying to take advantage of the church. In that particular text, he's defining who a true widow is who has this, and I think it's a financial need that's going to be for the rest of their life, and he uses a word that that is to catalog them or enroll them in a list there in that text. It's important for us to understand. We have a text like this that says they're selling their fields, they're taking care of those who had need, but we look at other lenses in Scripture and recognize it's appropriate for us to then ask the question, what is a legitimate need? How do we, with discernment, take care of these needs? Um, I've had benevolence questions come up when I was a minister, come up to me in the church where they said, I need $200 today. This is an example of one. And I said, wow, we don't carry that kind of cash here at the church, um, but tell me about your need. And, and the need was, you know, we need $200 rent. We need it today. I mean, this afternoon. I need it. Wow, we have a system for that. I said, we could do it probably by tonight. If you walk through this system, we have a team of people who'd love to help take care of you. No, I need it today. Well, all I have is $20 here. I'll take $20. Sir, that's not going to help you get to $200. And then kind of cuss words and a few other things later, slam doors and driving away. Now, I'm part of a group of churches, okay, to where we actually have this kind of alert system where we try to discern needs, legitimate needs in town. And we say, hey, there's a gentleman. I don't know his story. I don't know if this is real or not. But three other churches said he came here. Here was his story. It was a different story all of those kinds of things. I think God at times calls us to have discernment and that that's okay. Watered Gardens here in town, one of our ministry partners is a good example. Um, When we give to them, we're trying to use discernment to care for those who are sometimes on the side of the street. We wanna do that. And we want to at times give up something of ourselves to take care of someone who has need. And first and foremost, we need to do that for each other in the family, but that needs to extend outward as well. Because Jesus says that money 
is very closely connected to our heart. Now, I don't have this on me today because my kids take all my cash, um, but sometimes I'll take a $20 bill out and I'll set it on the desk of a student. So I'll set $20 here. And of course what happens as soon as I do this with high school students or with college students is they're like, wow, $20, right? They recognize the value of that. And it's more so with high school students and college students than it is with you all. But, but I recognize that when I lay cash down, there is something alluring about that. And I ask them this question. I ask them this question. What is this worth? And I know at first they're just like, they just roll their eyes at me. This is worth $20. They know exactly what it's worth. They recognize it right away. My, my eight-year-old daughter would recognize what a, 20, what a $20 bill is worth. I don't know that she would know what it's worth, but she'd recognize it as $20. And I go, no, no, no. What was this worth? And I say, I mean, what's the material made out of? Well, the material's cotton, paper. I mean, it has a little metal strip. I, I get it, but it's cotton, paper, ink. It's, uh, you know, I always kind of say it's pocket lint for the most part. Sorry about that. I mean, it's really, of itself, it's worthless. It's not worth anything. You know this. It's a note that says this is what it's worth. And, and you and I decide how much of our life we will then exchange for a certain amount of money. We, we decide this. And of course, like in our social grouping or in our culture, we decide how much an hour of someone's life at minimum it's worth. Minimum wage. And so we exchange our life for this. We actually decide, yes, I'll sign a contract and here's where I'll work. And boy, you know, Super Bowl's today. They're going to make more money in like one hour today than what many of us will make in a lifetime, right? There's that dynamic. But we say, I'm going to exchange my life. And if you're a high school student, college student, it's, it's less than $20. But here's this $20, and I've now given an hour of my life away. This is what my life is worth. Oh, do you now start to recognize the spiritual ramifications of why money is so, so intricately connected to our soul, our spirit? So then when I walk and I take this $20 and I say to someone, I'm going to give this to you. It's not me just giving them money. What am I essentially doing? I am saying, you are so valuable to me. I see your needs as so legitimate that I would actually take part of my life and I would take that and I would then give it to you. I'm actually reduplicating, echoing what Jesus calls me to do by giving away my life. So generosity is not merely just in giving to the church. Notice how I want to make this more spiritual than sometimes what it is, is the, oh, the church needs my money. Because what we're going to find out in the internal conflict is that that actually becomes a pretty big problem when it becomes really this opportunity for us to wield our power using our money to either gain selfish glory, honor, or to yield or, or to leverage our own power over the church for our own purposes. So the son of encouragement here is bringing a field and he's giving up the money, entrusting it to the church, entrusting it at this point to the apostles. And he's entrusting it to them to then make the discerning decisions of how this gets used. Notice there's quite a bit of faith involved in that. I one time was a part of a church and there was a congregational meeting. We don't have those here. Imagine what that would look like. Uh, but congregational meeting, at one point, a gentleman raised his hand. I knew this gentleman. He's a good friend of mine. Actually, was a neighbor of mine. Um, thing I remember about him all the time, he vacuumed his lawn with his lawnmower. He didn't mow it. He vacuumed his lawn with his lawnmower. Um, and his favorite cookies were round ones. That's what he said to my wife when she was offering to make him cookies. I would agree. But here's what he said. You know, I give, I give my money to the church and here's what I want to take place. And, and I, I recognized something, and, and we were able to have a conversation. 
that this is no longer your money once you give it to the church. You, you have given this to God, and now the church is able to use this in a way. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be held into, into account, because I promise you the next text is going to show you there's accountability for how the church is going to use these kinds of gifts. And, and so I want to pause on this particular text and just start to get to kind of the spiritual component here. What's going on in the background of the church as they devote themselves to the fellowship? Now, I'm grateful um, when I look here and see some of the things that take place because we all come together and do these things together. Whether that's ministry here locally or ministry in Japan, or whether that's some of the right here right now kinds of needs that get met that honestly I don't know all of the stories and I don't need to because I trust the people and I trust that God's going to hold the people accountable who are responsible for that. But can I just shed, shed a window on it? We were blessed by right here, right now, at one point in time, three, four years ago. Um, our house on 4th of July had a firecracker that landed next to it. And, and a fire underneath our chimney started while we were gone at the fireworks at Missouri Southern. My wife was in Taiwan on a missions trip. I come home with the kids, and um, this is 11.30. We're going to light off a couple fireworks because it's dad, and he's letting kids stay up late. And when I walk into the house, our house is filled with smoke. I tell the kids to get out. I'm foolish. I go through the house looking for an appliance or something that's turned on that should be turned off. Our neighbor is across the street, has already called the, fi the, fire, uh, the, the firemen. And so I'm in, in the house getting ready to call 911, and the fire trucks are pulling up. And I'm like, wow, God, you're good. Like, I had no idea how that worked out. Or 911 is great. And so I run back out. My kids are crying. Um, I would, you know, I shouldn't have been inside, to be honest. And, uh, and we actually walk around the side of our house right by where the fire was at. And at that point, adrenaline is running. And I'm not even looking at the house at that point. I'm with my three kids across the street. Firemen are running to our house. And I just recognize the value of my three kids in that moment. I call my wife. Hey, honey. Thanks for leaving me home with kids. Um, everyone's good. <laughs> That's never a good way to start a conversation, right? It's midnight here. It's noon there. Everyone's okay, right? That's how I started that conversation. Um, and our house wasn't destroyed. Uh, people have lost way more than what we did. Uh, we had a, a wall that had to get tear, torn out in our living room and smoke everywhere. Uh, so everything smelled like smoke. And that's what I did the next week while my wife was gone and I was on vacation. Um, but, but the church uh, came over that day and brought me a gift card. And, and it, was, it was $500. I'm just going to say here's how much it was. Uh, they helped us pay for hotels because uh, we had to stay in hotels for the next week and a half or so until we moved in with a friend. And helped us pay for things like laundry, going to the laundromat and restaurants with the kids. And my wife was gone and she's like, you stayed in hotels and went to restaurants and then went to friends' houses and had daycare for the kids. She's like, that turned into something completely different. Um, but I want to say this. Like, we've experienced some of this. When we first moved here, um, and this is before that date, uh, we, had, we had not gone through a lot of financial troubles as a family, but we had weird things happen to us the first year we moved to Joplin, Missouri. There was a big storm, blew down a tree in our house, and it knocked into our garage. We had a car that broke down. We went through like $10,000 of like the Dave Ramsey emergency fund that we had, and I know we're young at this point in time, but I remember like praying the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread, and we actually meant it at that point in time. Like we meant like groceries this week as we're trying to raise these three kids. And there was a family from this church who had no idea of our need, whose parent ran a food bank. They had extra food. And she called my wife. She said, hey, I know y'all are new in town. We're trying to find someone to get rid of this extra food with. Huh? Okay. Yeah, we'll take it. And they show up on our front porch, and here's this extra food. I say this to say, sometimes we look at a story like this, and we go, wow, so otherworldly. No, no, no. This happens oftentimes. I know people who right now are selling fields, literally, and businesses, literally, 
to give them away so that someone can come to know Jesus or someone can have their needs met. And I'm grateful for that, that that is part of the spirit of the church is this fellowship that we have. And one of the things we should ask ourselves is this question, do I have enough? And if I have more than enough, how should I then view that? It doesn't necessarily mean I need to sell it all right now. Maybe God has some plan in store for you later. But do I hold it like this? This is not my metaphor. Or do I hold it like this, saying, God, I'm a steward over this. You've given it to me. You've given me the gifts and abilities to even earn this, but it's yours, and I'm just a steward, and so I'm going to use it and leverage it for your kingdom and your purposes. So this little paragraph sets the stage, and it's a very positive stage of God's, really this vision he had for his people as they enter into the promised land, and now we find this dynamic early on in the church here. But then what happens as we turn the page is this strange story. I actually talked to Mark Christian and Michael DeFazio about this story this morning because it's an odd story. We have Barnabas who comes, and he's this example of someone who is generous. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira who come. And in this story, you know this. They decide, they see what's going on. And they decide, hey, let's get in on that action. So let's sell a field, but I don't know that I want to get all the money. And I'm putting some words in their mouth. Let, let's keep some of it back. But I, but I definitely want... and I. And I'm going to just try to discern what their motivations might be. The word used here for kept back later on in Titus is used for pilfering or for embezzling. So, so that word there, you need to understand that there is a motivation linked to that word. So the motivation here is that they want to gain something by the way they're using their money. Now, what, what do they have to gain? Well, number one is this sense of honor. Wow, look at them. How generous are they? But there's a lie that is there. Now, we have this early church and this question that is hanging there. Does Jesus see? Does Jesus know? Do we live as his people? Are we a holy people? But this morning, interesting in my conversation with Michael DeFazio and Mark Christian, is this question. If the temple is no longer the temple, but we as the church now have the Holy Spirit and we are the temple, does holiness matter? It really does. So go back to the Old Testament. You could talk about Achan's sin. You could talk about Achan's sin uh, where he lied and he kept something that was meant to be dedicated to God. And what happened to Achan? He was punished. We could talk about Uzzah who touched the sacred things. And you, you kind of look at that story and you're like, man, that's kind of a weird story. And I know, but sometimes it's just taking it for granted that this is something that is actually holy. And we find this happen in the Old Testament as well. Can I, can I put a few words as well, uh, under, underline a few words for you in this particular paragraph? There's also a word filled. This word filled is oftentimes been used to talk about those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, now we find, how is it that Satan has filled your heart? So when it comes to this particular story, we discover that these are individuals, Ananias and Sapphira, his husband and wife, they decide together that they're going to give, but keep part of it for themselves, and that this motivation is a false motivation. They have been filled with, not the Holy Spirit, but with Satan in this particular moment. I think there's two possible motivations. Number one is to give and get that honor that Barnabas and others were giving, get, getting. Wow, look how generous this is. Now, hopefully, this would be true of us, we're reflecting that to God. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is giving. Why? Because sometimes if you're motivated by other people saying, wow, then that's all you're going to get. That's your reward. But here's the tension. 
Other times in the Sermon on the Mount, another place in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, um, let others see your good works so they may glorify the Father in heaven. Wait, which one is it, Jesus? This is why Jesus is wise. Because this is how wisdom works. You really have to decide your heart. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about your heart in the kingdom. So if you can give and you can allow this to be someone, something that says, man, look at God's glory, how good the church is, how good Jesus is as the church embodies him. Or if your motivation is more to have self-gain, maybe you probably shouldn't let anyone know what you're giving. So Jesus gives us some of those parameters as well. So some of it is perhaps glory. I would argue that there's possibly a second thing here because of the ancient, uh, not ancient, first century dynamics of what I'm going to call benefaction or benefactor-client relations. And that is when I give you money, I now have leverage over you. And not, not as in like a lender kind of uh, uh, dynamic, but in the sense of you owe me honor. So a benefactor in the ancient world would give someone money, but then you would become a client under that person, and your job would be to bring them glory, to bring them honor. Jesus is our ultimate benefactor. That's actually language that's used of Jesus throughout the New Testament, is that our, our role, because he has given us everything, all that we could ever want, is to bring him, with all of our resources, honor and glory. And Ananias and Sapphira, by doing this, motivationally, culturally, are trying to step into his position to where they now want to be the benefactor of this young church and have some of that shared glory and shared leverage over the church. And I think the Holy Spirit can see right through that. This isn't the only other place we see that, by the way. Corinth, for Paul, wanted to financially support Paul's ministry, but Paul says, I worked among you. I actually didn't want your money. You want to know why Paul didn't take uh, Corinth's money? It's not because Paul never did. He took money from the Philippians who gave generously to him. It's because the Corinthians wanted leverage over him as benefactor. And he says, I'm actually your benefactor. Jesus is your benefactor. You don't have that ability, that right to have the authority over me to decide how to use me as kind of your client in this relationship. So I think this is the dynamic that's going on here. And we'll find that judgment takes place. So they come and notice what happens. They lay this gift, same way as, as Barnabas does. They lay this at the apostles' feet. And then Ananias first falls dead there at the apostles' feet. I don't think that's on accident that the place where they made their sacrifice, this holy moment, is also the place where they were judged for the unholiness that was in their heart. Now, it's a weird story. But sometimes, when I fail to see the wrath of God against sin, I fail to see the guilt of, and shame of my own sin. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? As I fail to see the, what Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Thankfully, the apostles have just been preaching a message about the resurrection, is that the wages of sin is death, but thanks be to God, Jesus is the one who paid that price. So when we come to Jesus, the wrath of God, sometimes people say, where is the wrath of God in the New Testament that we have in the Old Testament? I want you to understand, we find pictures of it, like Ananias and Sapphira, of people who are not in Christ and who have in some ways moved outside of that. Paul's going to talk about in 1 Timothy, handing someone over to Satan. They're no longer in Christ. But the wrath of God for those who are in Christ is poured out in laser focus on the cross of Christ. It's still there. It's just he bears it on the cross from the Old Testament. And so in this particular story, Ananias both and Sapphira, um, they pay the penalty. The wages of sin is death for their sin. And in many ways, this becomes a warning that the church is holy and that God is holy. 
And the Holy Spirit is able to discern and see and know. And we, we are in the presence of God. And we don't want to take that lightly. But thanks be to God, we can enter into the presence like the high priest or similar to the high priest because we have a greater high priest, Jesus, who brings us into the presence of God because of his death on the cross. Therefore, we don't have to fear, but we can live in a holy fear or reverent fear of God. Okay, odd story. But again, an internal threat would be what? Well, that people could use the church for their own motivations. Does that ever happen? Let me just get practical. Does that ever happen that people would, I don't know, want to get involved in a church in a local community because it's a good network for my business? I mean, I'm not going to just you know, slam one business, but we can stereotype those, can't we? That, that people would want to be a leader in the church because people would trust me and they might buy da 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 um, sometimes even in who we choose as leaders. And, and I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church at large, although we have to have gut checks sometimes, heart checks sometimes. Let's choose a leader because that's a good business person. And they're going to financially help the church out. Oh, we need to make sure we recruit those people into our church because we're going to build. I live in this world. We're going to plant a church there. You want to know why? Because economically, it's the fastest growing community in the United States right now. Can you imagine the building we could build there? Now, again, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't judge all the motivations because wealthy people need churches too. But it's interesting to me that more church plants take place in sometimes wealthy communities than they do impoverished communities. That's just interesting to me. So we, we need to recognize the church is holy and we are held into account and that there is judgment for sins. And sometimes those judgments, in this case, is immediate and sometimes those things play out. But I want to recognize that God sees my motivations and live in a holy fear, reverent fear, but one that leads me to Jesus, and one that leads me to tell that story of grace as well. Okay, questions, thoughts? Ananias' story is kind of an interesting story. Would this be an example of the sin and the death? You about John or... um, that's a good question. The, kind of the idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that idea. Um, I'd, I'd say that that's a little bit, I mean, in that sense, connected, the difference between filled with the Holy Spirit and filled uh, with Satan, but I don't know it's exactly the same. Uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is kind of an interesting dynamic of defining that. What does it mean? And, and, and perhaps it means this, that is not the Holy Spirit working, and, and actually just saying this is not what the Holy Spirit can do. But I, but I think ultimately the, the sin that leads to death is a rejection of Jesus. It's a rejection of the Holy Spirit's work. So in that sense, yeah, there's a connection there. Other thoughts, other questions? Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles while they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. I wonder why, right? Uh, <laughs> that story's going to catch wind a little bit. But notice what happens in verse 14. The people hold them in high esteem, verse 14, but more and more believers were added to the Lord and multitudes of them were men and women. So we have this tension that says, and people were afraid to join them, but yet more and more people joined them. Notice there's this, this tension that is there of as we take the gospel more seriously and ourselves more seriously as God's holy people, there is this like, I don't know that I'm going to take that seriously. And yet also this dynamic that says, that's, that's what I need to be a part of. And, and what we find in a, a dynamic that's going to take place here with persecution is persecution in many ways is actually going to be, or suffering is going to be, the seed of the church. 
And we're going to find that sometimes these conflicts actually bring about growth in the church. And I would argue sometimes difficult seasons, difficult times actually brings about growth in the church. When you start to recognize the value of what is real and what's not real. It was interesting, after September 11th, 2001, um, we started to recognize some things that, that people were turning themselves spiritually to ask spiritual questions. You remember this season? When I say this to students at Ozark, they're like, I don't remember that at all. I was, I was not even born yet, right? Um, and I recognize how old I am. Um, but we recognized that season where people started asking some spiritual questions. Because what was happening? Fear, lack of security. National security was in question. Financial security was in question. All of those labels that we like to label with security, social security, national security, health security, all of those things were in question. So people ask some spiritual questions. So sometimes difficulty can actually bring us to the place where we start to ask some spiritual things. And I think that's one of the dynamics that's going on here. And when it comes to this dynamic, we also find that the church is continuing the ministry to look like Jesus. Peter, as he's walking down, and this is an odd story to me, I'm not going to lie. Peter, as he's walking down the street, his shadow is being cast. And there's a dynamic to shadows that are interesting. You ever been like a kid and been like, look at my shadow, mom, look at your shadow. Like there's this weird like extension of ourselves that is there. And can God at times use even perhaps what might be superstitious? I think he can. Shadows are weird in the ancient culture as well. This weird like extension of a person's identity. But there's also, there's also some kind of more scary views or, uh, of shadows. They, they were kind of intriguing to the ancient people. So, so can people, can God use superstitions? I think he can. Jesus, people walked up to the hem of Jesus' garment, touched the hem of his garment, and what happened? They're healed. Paul, it's going to happen to them as well. So it's a weird story that Peter's shadow is being cast and people are being healed because of their faith that someone who's a representative of Jesus can heal them through the power of Jesus. Ultimately, this is still faith. But it brings me to ask this question that I failed to ask last time because we ran out of time, which we won't today. I had to look at my watch. What is the purpose of miracles in Jesus's ministry, as well as in the ministry uh, that we find of the early church? We do find miracles somewhat gravitationally pulled around certain eras in history. So we have Moses's ministry, especially the ministry of Elijah and Elisha and Jesus's ministry, Jesus's ministry, and then Peter and the early church. But notice even then, some of that dynamic of miracles seems to somewhat fade after the church is established as we go along in the book of Acts. Not that they just disappear altogether, but, but they seem to be kind of pulled into these key moments of time where transition is taking place. That's interesting to me. But if you were to say, what's the purpose of Jesus' miracles? I mean, you recognize Jesus probably didn't heal everybody he came along the street and interacted with. Uh, We know at least it starts with compassion. There's a component of compassion that's there because uh, this word is used of Jesus. He had compassion not only on them, plural, but on sometimes him or her. And that word compassion is, uh, uh, you've heard this before, the word there is a moving of the bowels. It's a deep level emotion. Uh, the word, uh, the Greek word, not that you typically need Greek words, it's splunkna. It sounds like the deep movement of the bowels, isn't it? Um, but, but that idea is a deep emotion that, have you ever been wounded for someone? So deep or hurt for someone so deep that it just made you sick? We use that language. So part of it is compassion that Jesus has. So he says, pick up your mat and walk. Uh, but this is to show that you can be forgiven. So we have a spiritual component, but a physical component. Now, you know, sometimes we tease what happened to this guy as he got up and walked, right? Um, Well, he walked and and ran and and did all of those things, but eventually 
he got sick again. You know, it'd be really sad. He got hit by a bus. You know, I mean, we, can't, we can't speculate on that. Um, well, I can speculate he didn't get hit by a bus. But the dynamic of this, like, this guy eventually died again. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And Mary and Martha had to have, if they didn't die first, a second funeral for Lazarus. That was not a good deal for Lazarus, by the way. Like, if, if Lazarus is in the presence of God, hey, Lazarus, I'm actually going to send you back. I know, shalom, it's, it's peaceful here. Contentment, you want contentment? Presence of God is a place where you find shalom, contentment. I know what it means to be content, to have little or to have everything I need. I look forward to that day. A little plug on heaven right there. I look forward to not having a sense of anxiety or discontent. I have all that I need right here. Lazarus, I need to send you back. To, why? Well, because I, I need to kind of prove a point. It's a sign. But I, I want to glorify Jesus. So I need to send you back. I know it's not a good deal for you, but I need you to go back. So part of the reason for miracles in Jesus' ministry was to, to open a window into the future of the power and faithfulness and promise of Jesus. That one day, what we see as an example or a picture here is going to be fully complete in eternity there. It's a sign. John uses that word sign. It's a signpost that says here is who Jesus is, but here is also where he's leading us as a people. And I think that's important for us when it comes to miracles. It's a reminder that God is present, that he is here. And so the question sometimes becomes, well, can God perform? Anytime you start a phrase with, can God do this? The answer is probably, yeah. Okay. Can God and does God perform miracles today? Yeah, I think he can. I think he does. But does he have to? Again, I don't want to say that God has to either. Both of those things are putting God in a box of things he has to do. I know this because I've had it personalized, that I've had prayers that seemed like they've had miraculous answers. Um, I have a book that was on prayer, and I'm praying for an aunt of my wife that she would be healed, that she would find healing. And, and there was a moment where she was healed. And then there was a season where she was not. And I remember that wrestling even in my own faith. And at her funeral, she recorded her personal testimony and this reminder to her family, and this is her on video to her family, of the faith that she has in the resurrection, that she will be healed or that she had been healed. And it clicked. That there is an answer to that prayer that is yes, and all of our yeses are yes in Jesus, but that yes is a little bit different than what I expected the yes to be. But ultimately, it ends in a yes. When we are in Christ, this dynamic is really important for us. So I want to pause on the, the shadow that we have of Peter here and go, yeah, this is a little bit different. But at the same time, we recognize that this is exactly an echo of Jesus's ministry that takes place as the church is being established. So in verse 17, you'll notice the high priest pays attention again. Oh, good old Caiaphas and Annas come back into the story. This time they're not even named. And I kind of like that about Luke. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to name them again. Um, and there's a dynamic here where we have kind of the same old story that we had earlier on in the book of Acts. And this time we find some of their motivations. I've listed these motivations for you. They're filled with jealousy, verse 17. They have a fear of the people, verse 26. They feel guilty. They should. They were part of the group that says his blood be on us and our children. And they are angered. In fact, part of the reason they feel guilty is because Peter says, and you crucified him, you killed him. And then they turn around in their anger and want to kill them. It exposes their heart, doesn't it? 
These motivations are, are motivations we find not only in the Gospel of Luke, but in the Gospel accounts themselves of the Jewish leaders. What were they about Jesus? They were jealous of him. They were threatened by him. They were threatened that Rome would come and take away their positions of authority, their positions of power. They were angered by him. In fact, they were so angered by him, they made plots multiple times to have him killed until finally Judas, who had Satan fill his heart, huh, interesting, come and provide them a way to do this outside of the view of the people in the temple. Hey, I know where Jesus goes and where he prays and where he hangs out in a garden. Okay, we can do this secretly. So Judas makes that possible because of their fear of the people and that dynamic that's going on. So because they're teaching in the name, and because they're speaking to the people the words of life, notice the contrast here between the death that just happened of Ananias and Sapphira. We have this message, this gospel of life that's being perpetuated, and they're doing this in the temple. Well, the high priest comes, and they arrest all of the people, and you can read down through this, and they find themselves in prison, and now down in verse 28, they say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. You remember this from the last imprisonment trial that was there. We we told you not to speak in the name, but Peter, who said, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, says, I'm not going to say that again. Like, I'm not going to stop speaking the name of Jesus. What happened to Peter? Well, he's an ordinary, unschooled man, but he has been with Jesus. The resurrection changes Peter. Peter's story, as well as that of others, Jesus' brothers and others, is one of those pieces of evidence that make me go, something happened that changed Peter. They were locked in a room afraid. They 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 ran because of self-preservation when Jesus was arrested. And now they're going, bring it on, let's go. And there's a dynamic here that is intriguing to me of transformation. Then we have this dynamic that says, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So this word is starting to get out. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Remember what I've already quoted? His blood be on us and our children. So they've brought that blood upon themselves. And by this, I don't mean all Jewish people. I need you to hear that. Okay, that's really important for us to understand. The dynamic are these leaders, Ezekiel would prophesy about these leaders, these false shepherds that have false motivations who want to preserve their own power. So we have this dynamic that is there, that it's not all Jewish people, but Peter is Jewish, and he is sharing with them the guilt that they have, the guilt that we have, this gospel message. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, hanging him on a tree. We have a gospel message here, don't we, again? In fact, you could study the sermons of Peter and Paul and go, what is a central gospel when it comes to a gospel message? Well, sending of Jesus, crucifixion of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, ascension of Jesus. Oh, by the way, you know that story. And then apply it to how that's changed you. So Peter continues and says, and God exalted him. This is ascension. And put him at the right hand as a, this word in ESV, um, it's kind of a weird word. ESV has leader. Exalted him to the right hand as a leader and savior. Does any of your translations have a different word there? Prince. Okay, good. It's an odd word. Any others? Okay, the sender or founder? Okay. Oh, savior. Okay, good. So we have this word leader. I want to kind of highlight for you this word leader in Acts 3.15 was Peter's sermon as well. He says, you killed the author. That was that word, author of life. The word leader and author, you can kind of see how this would be the same thing. Someone who led life, he brought about life, he authored life, or founder or prince, the leader there. This word has a little bit of a range of meaning. So ESV has translated it leader, but I want you to understand that Peter has used this word already to talk about the one who gave us life. 
you turned around and you killed him. The one who was the leader or prince or ruler of all things, you thought you were over him and you killed him. So he's also savior and he came to give repentance and forgiveness and we are witnesses to these things. Notice that core gospel message. Jesus came, God sent him, he died on the cross. We're guilty, we're all guilty. But God raised him from the dead, God exalted him and he changed us and we're witnesses of these things that took place. So we go on to verse 33. When they heard these things, they wanted to kill them. It's exactly what happened after Lazarus' story, by the way. Jesus raises Lazarus. People in Jerusalem, the rulers in Jerusalem, hear stories of Jesus' growing popularity, and they go, we've got to kill both those guys. That's a bad deal for Lazarus. But in essence, in the story of Lazarus, Jesus traded his life for Lazarus. He went down to raise Lazarus from the dead, knowing that they would want to kill him. And what happens to Lazarus happens for all of us. That Jesus says, come out of your grave. But only because he went into his. And so there's this change similar to uh, Barabbas at the story, this criminal who deserves the middle cross, who ends up being free, and Jesus takes his place. This is the story that we tell. Well, when they, they come to gather together, there is this rabbi named Gamaliel, and he's an interesting rabbi. Paul, we're going to find out later, studied under him. Uh, he's a famous rabbi. You, you can read about him as a rabbi in Jewish literature as well. His grandson is the, is the rabbi who eventually created what I would say would be the clear line in the sand between the synagogue and the church. And so there's some interesting dynamics with this particular rabbi. But he, in wisdom, like Nicodemus does in the Gospels, he says, hey, if this is just a, if this is just a normal kind of rebellion by a rebellious leader, this is going to be like these two stories he mentions. Thudius, which there's some conflict if you dive into kind of the scholarly writings about this. Which story is this? Because there is a, there is a rebellion by a Thudius that happens about 10 years later. And so some people question, is Luke just mistaken about when this is? Or is this another rebellion? And really the answer is we, we don't know. It could be another rebellion by another Thudius. That, that happens. There were lots of rebellions um, that took place. But the second one we actually have record of in Josephus, as well as some other recorded accounts, um, but Judas the Galilean. In fact, it's during a census that this rebellion takes place. Interestingly enough, the governor of the census here is the same governor, we find out in Josephus, ancient historian, that was the governor who had the census at the beginning of the book of Luke. And what happened at the beginning of the book of Luke? There's a census. You need to go to your hometown because we need to have taxes the coming of Jesus, that same governor is governor, and there's two different census that take place. One that we know more about, which is this one, and one that we don't know about, which would be the census that we would say led to the Christmas story or the nativity. So it's an intriguing link that takes place. Luke likes to plug the fact that our story is a historical story. So he quotes historical people. Well, I think Luke, to uh, Theophilus as well as us, is trying to say, this took place in the context of actual history. The resurrection of Jesus is historical. And so he says, man, these guys, when they died, their movement died with them. And if, if this is the movement of God, you don't want to be found opposing God, which is such a fun um, little line. It reminds me of Caiaphas when he says, it is better if one man die for the entire nation. Meaning if we kill Jesus, it's better. What he didn't know is that God was actually putting words in his lips and he was prophesying, it is better that one man dies for the entire nation on the cross. A similar kind of thing happens here. But let's beat them. Let's flog them. Jewish flogging, not like Roman flogging, which Jesus received. 
Deuteronomy lists it as 40 lashes. They tended to go, let's go 39 just to not break the law. But this is still severe, not as severe as the flogging Jesus would have received, where their goal was to bring them as close to death as possible. But they receive flogging, and what do they do? They go out and they rejoice because, like Jesus, they suffered on his behalf. So we have a church that suffers by giving generously. Here's my life. Let me give it to you because you have need. We have a church that suffers willingly. I'm going to speak the name, even if it costs me physically. We have a church that says, I'm going to look like Jesus, even though it costs me. This is what it looks like to extend the ministry and the mission of Jesus as we find this taking place, even as they face opposition uh, through, uh, through these outsiders in this context. Um, 41, 42, verses 41, 42. They left the, the presence, they rejoices, counted, uh, worth, being counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house. Notice that dynamic again. In the temple, house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching that Christ, uh, the Messiah, is Jesus. Then we come to chapter 6. And let me take about five, six minutes and introduce this. We might come back to it as a way of uh, alluding back to this lesson next time we're together. We come back to another internal threat. And one of the things we want to pay attention to is, again, it's connected to money. So this internal threat is this. There's a complaint. It's church. Isn't there always? Wherever two or more are gathered, there will be conflict. Okay? It is nothing new under the sun. Okay? But this time, the conflict is caused because of a good thing. Hey, the church was growing, and it caused a problem. By the way, that's true here, too. Can I just acknowledge that? That sometimes when the church is growing, there's conflict that comes up. Hey, my needs aren't being met. This happened in a church I was a part of. We went from being a church about 300 to a church about 400, 450. You know what happened? It's, some, it's something weird. We actually studied these dynamics in our culture. There's something weird that has to happen psychologically about the way we view church to grow through certain numbers. And so something happens when you grow from like 300 to about 400, 600, is all of a sudden that's I don't know everybody anymore. And I really want to know everybody. And it causes conflict. It really does. And when you move from 600... To about 1,100, 1,200, something changes. I don't know all the staff people. I don't even recognize all of those names. They're on staff. And something really weird happens when you go from about 1,200 to about like 3,000, 4,000 people, like about where we're at. It's really weird. I know very few people. Or some of the other dynamics that play out. And even some of the accusations that, that play out. So I want us to pay attention that, that growth in the book of Acts is celebrated, but it's also recognizable that it does bring conflict. In this particular context, here's the conflict. A complaint comes up between the Hellenists. These would be Jewish people, but have Greek culture and Greek language. Okay, so we're still kind of in the Jewish connection here. Now, later on, the problem is going to be even worse because guess what? We're going to have Gentiles and Jews. But here we have what are called the Hellenists. That's Greek background. Okay, so the complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because what? Their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Remember the fields that were being sold? Take care of people who have need. Now it's still going to cause conflict. How's the money getting used? I mean, that's how we would put it, right? Show me your budget, right? And so here's this dynamic. In the Jewish synagogue, first century world, there would be representatives, officers, who would be delegated the responsibility of collecting food for widows. They would typically have, and the number was usually about seven from what we're finding in the synagogue literature, they'd have seven representatives, and they would be responsible sometimes for 12 different widows individually, and they'd take the food. This is what I called Meals on Wheels when I did it in Illinois. 
Okay? I took little plastic containers, looked like a school lunch, and I delivered it to widows and widowers in their homes that were usually 95 degrees um, in the middle of winter, right? And, and I would sit down and I would eat with them and have this meal. This was part of my role at that point in time. Or I'd take communion to shut-ins. Um, but we have this complaint, hey, the widows who have this Hellenistic background aren't being taken care of as well as those who are, are Hebrew-speaking, or Jewish, uh, are, are, excuse me, the, the more, I would say, insider group, uh, closer to the Jerusalem culture. So Hellenists would be those who had been spread out in the, Hellenist, uh, the, the Greek world and had that culture dynamic. So we have this division that is there. So they bring the pool, uh, people together. Now, what is the church devoted to? The church devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So those devotions, uh, those, those devotions, those four pillars are still core here. Because the apostles come and say, it's not going to be right for us to avoid teaching or neglect teaching so that we can meet this need. But we actually need to do all of this. We need to be devoted to all of these things. And we can't. We've grown too much. So even in, the, it's interesting, in the words that are used here, the apostles are going to use the word uh, waiting on tables, serving tables, so serving food on tables. They're going to say it's not appropriate for us to neglect the serving food to tables as in the word of God in order to serve literal food. But it's also not appropriate and not healthy for us to avoid serving literal food in the serving and distribution of the word of God. We need to do both. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to appoint new leaders. And so we have here this language. Now, our Greek word here, is the verbal word for the word deacon, which just means to serve. So we're going to ask the question next week, what does a deacon do? Anything the church needs to serve, right? There's a dynamic of that. And then what are deacons? We don't have those here at Christ Church, so who are those? And we're going to find out, oh, Latin word is actually the word minister. Oh, okay. So that's what they do, is they serve and help meet the needs of the church so that the word of God can be taught. And we have this paradigm that takes place in these first seven verses to where the conflict is, there are needs that are not getting met, but we can't neglect the word of God and we can't neglect these needs. So let's appoint these individuals. Now, who are these individuals? Well, they're full of the spirit, they're full of wisdom. They need to be Christ followers. They need to be someone who is authentic. Paul's going to use the language of 1 Timothy 3. They need to be above reproach, not being able to be accused of being a hypocrite. So whether it's elders or deacons, they need to be blameless or above reproach, full of the spirit, of good repute. And they assign these seven. And part of the reason for the, the list of these seven is to introduce us to our key character next week, which is Stephen. We're going to find Stephen walking again through the gospel message next week. And Stephen is one of these. Scholars often say, oh, look, they have Hellenist or Greek names as well. They seem to be those who are equipped to meet the needs of those Hellenist widows. God has a way of bringing the right people to the church and saying, oh, you have that background? I can use that. Oh, it's weird. The church really needed someone who knew how, knew how to fix that. Huh, I just started attending here last week. Oh man, that church really needed someone. This happened to me over and over again. That church needed someone who knew how to minister to women who had lost a child. And you just started attending last year. And all of a sudden God used you in that way. God is, it's kind of interesting in his timing, how he does things, how he orchestrates things. But sometimes we can minimize ourselves and go, God can't use me. And then there becomes this need and even a complaint. And as someone who is a, a leader in the church, a complaint is actually oftentimes an opportunity. And so let this be true of you as well. When you hear a complaint, maybe it becomes an opportunity for you to show grace and serve someone in the midst of their need. Can I bring kind of these three stories back together? 
the church is the kind of church that says, I have enough. Let me help take care of your needs. It's the kind of church that recognizes the holiness of God. And as we give and as we worship and as we sacrifice, we recognize the holiness of God and that we on our own are not worthy, but it's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we enter into the presence of God and we make these sacrifices and we worship in this way. That, that we as a church, that as we suffer and we face opposition, that we are merely living in response and like Jesus in the world. And that as we as a church find ourselves trying to live in this community, it's going to have moments of conflict where the church, like a family, becomes this laboratory where we get to, we get to practice living selflessly like Jesus. That's what I tell my kids all the time. I really don't like my brother. I really don't like my sister. Here's the dynamic. Families and churches become a laboratory of living selfless lives, living sacrificial lives, living service lives for the sake of other people rather than selfish lives that we would have of our own. So may we be that kind of church. We're going to come back together. We're going to move to an external threat, which is the story of Stephen and the Sermon of Stephen. We're going to find Old Testament language pervasive throughout that. We're going to then go on beyond Stephen and find that there's even further persecution. And this persecution is actually going to cause now in the book of Acts. We've been in Jerusalem. That's all we've been. What's Acts 1 say? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then Samaria and the ends of the earth. Persecution is going to be the things that set the seed or the, the catalyst that says, okay, it's time to go. Let's go out. And persecution is going to naturally push people into other regions. They may not have naturally gone without the Holy Spirit prompting them. So that's where we'll be next week. We'll see you then. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.